Savior tonight to all of you again in the name of Jesus, our risen Lord and Savior. He is kings and Lord of Lords today. Good to be gathered with all of you. I just have come to appreciate my time spent. Lois and I and Mary Jo with you. Knew very few of you. We always thought at the beginning of this week, but uh, I've come to appreciate your brothers and sisters here. Tonight is Saturday night. I'd like to redeem the time. I would like to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Daniel in chapter 1. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that these Old Testament scriptures are given to us for an example, and we are to learn, we are to discover new things or discover from their experiences in life, and we're to learn from them. And I would like to look at the life of Daniel a bit tonight. Maybe before we go any further, I would just like to see how many are here in the audience. I don't want to single out anyone tonight because this message is for all of us, but how many are here between the ages of 15 and 22? Would you please stand to your feet? 15 and 22. Thank you. You can be seated. God bless you for being here tonight. This man, Daniel, that we're going to be talking about here in Daniel chapter 1 was the age of you, dear young people, here tonight. Somewhere in that age bracket. And I suppose if I would ask the little children, what, what do we know about a man in the Bible who spent a night with a lion? They would immediately say, well, it's Daniel, of course. But we must always remember Daniel chapter 6 is about 50 or 55 years after Daniel chapter 1. So let's start with Daniel chapter 1. We'll come to Daniel chapter 6 a little later in the message, but we'll start with chapter 1. Tonight I would like to entitle the message with three words. These three words are conscience, conviction, and character. Primarily talking about conviction tonight, but we cannot talk about conviction without also considering conscience and character. Because our convictions, in many ways, are shaped and formed by our consciences. Conscience is simply the faculty that God gave to all of us, placed within us, the implanted light of nature, I think is what Stephen Van Brock calls it, but something within us that the Spirit can use to bring conviction or convict us. That's our conscience, such as in John chapter 8, the adulterous woman, the story there, we know that story, was brought to Jesus by the scribes and Pharisees. And in verse 9, it says something like this, being convicted by their own consciences, that they, so, so it, was, it was a conscience that brought conviction to, their, to themselves. Conscience is important. It's important how our conscience are shaped and formed as well because the Bible does also talk about a seared conscience, seared with a hot iron that is no longer sensitive. But the word conviction is found not found in the Bible. It's, it's not a word that is in the Scriptures, but there are words that are synonymous to the word conviction. And we would find that in Hebrews 11 and, and where it talks about those who were persuaded 
and, and they embrace, that, that, that gives you an idea of, of, of conviction. It's a, the word persuaded simply means to be convinced on, of an inward certainty. That's conviction. Conviction. A quote. Conviction is a constraining and restraining force that keeps us from becoming guilty. Conviction rests. And I want us to get this because we'll come back to this hopefully later in the message. Convictions rest on the law and authority. Romans chapter 3 and verse 20 says something like this. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Romans 7, 7 says, I had not known sin, but by the law, for I had not known lust, except that, that the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. Personal conviction must always be anchored and based upon the laws of God, the Scriptures, the law of God. Now, on the other side, here we have conscience, or, yeah, conscience over here in the middle, conviction, and over here we have then character. Someone has said your character, or our character, is revealed by the clarity of our conviction. Our character reveals what our convictions really are. Definitions for character. Character is the inward conviction to do right according to the highest standard of behavior in every situation. Number two. Character consists of the stable and distinctive qualities built into the individual life which determine his or her response regardless of the circumstance. Thirdly, character is a wise response to the pressures of a difficult situation and what we do when we think no one is watching. That's character. When no one is watching, that reveals my true character, or our true character. It's important that we understand our character must be based upon, is based upon our conviction, and our conviction based upon the Word of God. Now let's come to our text. Daniel chapter 1. We want to make a study of conviction from Daniel chapter 1. I think I'll just read the entire chapter, 21 verses, to get a setting of the, uh, the context here at all. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, of the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. And the king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of the eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel, and the king's seed, and of the princes, children in whom was no blemish, but were but well-favored and skillful in all wisdom, and cunning in knowledge, and understanding science, and such as had the ability in them to stand in the king's palace and whom they might teach the learning of the tongue of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years, that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. 
Now among these were the children of Judah, Samuel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names, for he gave unto Daniel the name of Belteshazzar, unto Hananiah of Shadrach, unto Mishael of Meshach, unto Azariah of Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the fortunes of king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the princes of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into favor and tender love with the prince of the eunuchs. And the prince of the eunuchs said unto Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who hath appointed your meat and your drink. Why, for why should he see your faces worse liking than the children which are of your sort? Then shall you make me endanger my head to the king. Then said Daniel to Melzah, Whom the prince of the eunuchs have set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Prove thy servants, I beseech thee, ten days, and let them give us coals to eat and water to drink. Then let our countenance be looked upon before thee, and the countenance of the children that eat the portion of the king's meat. And, and as thou seest, deal with thy servants. So he consented to them in this matter, and proved them ten days. And at the end of ten days, their countenance appeared fairer and fatter in flesh than all the children which did eat the portion of the king's meat. Thus Melzar took away the portion of their meat and, and the wine that they should drink, and he gave them pulse. As for these four children, God gave them knowledge and skill in all learning and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all vision and dreams. Now, at the end of the days that the king had said he should bring them in, then the prince of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king communed with them, and among them all was found none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, therefore stood they before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding that the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers that were in all his realm. And Daniel continued even unto the first year of the king of Cyrus. Daniel chapter 1 covers a period of time of about three, between three and four years. So it covers a good bit of time in these 21 verses. We already find in verse 1 conflict. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar unto, unto Babylon, unto Jerusalem, and besieged it. So here we have conflict between two kings. King Jehoiakim and King Nebuchadnezzar. Between conflict between two earthly kingdoms, between Jerusalem and Babylon. Now we go into verse 2, and we see the conflict becoming even a bit deeper. And here is where, 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 where there's the spiritual conflict, that is where conviction really comes into place. And comes into where it must, convictions must be revealed. It says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand with part of the vessels, the house of God, capital G, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God, lowercase g, and he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. Between conflict between Jehovah God and the gods of Babylon. 
spiritual conflict, spiritual battle between truth and error, light and darkness, good and evil, between the kingdom of God and the spiritual wickedness in high places. That, that is where the conflict is. In verse 3, King Nebuchadnezzar tells Ashpenaz, now not only do I want the vessels that are in the house of God, but there's something else back there at Jerusalem, back there in Judah, that I want you to bring with you when you come back to Babylon. He says, this young man, bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes. I want you to bring them back with you when you come back to Babylon. In verse 4, he gives a very detailed list of what Ashpenaz is to look for when he goes to Jerusalem and he begins to search for men, young men. And I'd like to include young girls as well, women tonight. He looks for character qualities. And let's just consider them a bit here tonight. Youth, he says, without blemish. Youth that are unused. Youth without spot or blot. Youth that, that are pure and whose lives have not been formed with a lot of, of scars and who, who, are, who are pure whose habits and patterns have not been yet set and formed, where there is potential to shape them. That's the kind of young men I want. Secondly, he says, well-favored. That simply means handsome, good-looking. Youth that are goodly to look upon. Those of you that stood here tonight, I want you to know that you are the best looking of this group. There's just something that happens. Now, when we get a little older, we, we lose some of that beauty. You're gifted with that. And Ashpenaz was to look for that. And he was to bring those kind of good looking young men back to Babylon with him. He says, skillful in wisdom. Those who are successful and wise. Young men who are not strong physically, who are not only strong physically, but who are strong in, in, in management skills. Young men who are not given to soft, easy living. Those are the young men that we need. Fourthly, cunning and knowledge, he says. Men who are observant. Men, men who have, have perception and know what, what, what's going on around them. Young men whose brains are not, have not yet been formed with a lot of grooves. We talked about that the other night, how our brains, you know, have, have grooves in them and, and bridges that get knocked out and so forth. I don't know how it is or why it is, but my sons can get a hold of, of, of some kind of a piece of technology of electronics, we have uh, what we call a light bar that we move from tractor to tractor, a GPS guidance system to guide us back and forth through the fields. When we first purchased that, purchased that uh, piece of equipment about 
six, seven years ago, I struggled for the first year to try to figure out how to use this. My sons could be five miles from me, and I would, I would go to the field, and I would try to program this, this uh, GPS, this light bar, to guide me back and forth to the field, and I could not figure it out. I'd just get on the phone, I'd ask them, and they would help me right through that, and it'd be exactly what they said it was supposed to be. No grooves. So that they can pick it up much quicker. That's the kind of man I want, says, says uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And lastly, or no, fifthly then, understanding of science. And again, this has much to do with much the same. Consciousness of what's happening around them, able to study deeply. And then number six, ability to stand in the king's palace. Men who have leadership abilities and qualities. That's who we want. Young people, I want to tell you tonight, and all of us, for that matter, Babylon would love to have us. Babylon would love to have us and to have you. Now, I don't think there's a question tonight, but Babylon is a type of us. All we have to do is turn to Revelation chapter 17, and there it talks about Babylon, a type of the world and its system. Babylon wants young I dare say tonight, dear young people, that the church and the kingdom of God needs you as well. Bethel Church needs you. Bethel Church needs your, your, your beauty, your purity, your skills, your perception, your leadership abilities. The kingdom of God needs you. Needs you. Never, ever forget that. You are needed. Desperately needed. Conflict. Spiritual conflict. Now, Nebuchadnezzar has successfully brought men to Babylon. But he has a problem. He still has a problem. You see, it's one thing to have boys or, or young men in Babylon, but it's completely something else to put Babylon into the boys. Boys in Babylon, or Babylon in boys. There's a vast difference. A vast difference. So Nebuchadnezzar comes up with a program, with a scheme plan, as, how, as to how he's going to try to put Babylon into these boys. And let's look at that plan, and that program. First of all, number one, in verse four, he says, one thing that must happen is the language has to change. They're going to have to speak the Chaldean language, the language, the tongue of the Chaldeans. Did Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, did they speak the Chaldean language? I don't know. And I don't know if we can turn to any scripture that would indicate or tell us if they did or not. There's a good possibility that they did. Because this is where I don't know of any place that that would have been against the laws of their God. Anything that, that, that would have hindered them. But, but Nebuchadnezzar knew if you're going to control a people, control their language. As an example, when we lived in Ireland, 
there were a number of Eastern European people that attended our church and service. Ukrainian, Moldovian, Polish. Well, each of them had their own native tongue or language. But if, if they were at the age of 40 or 35 or 40 or above, they also had a common language. And you know what that was? It was Russian. Because when Russia was in power and, and, and controlled those countries around them, it was mandatory that they all, every child going to school, must learn the Russian language. Control the people, control their language. I trust tonight that we do not speak the language of Babylon. Yes, we can speak an English language, or what doesn't matter what language you're speaking tonight. But there is a language of this world that is filthy that ought not be coming from our mouth. It's part of Babylon. It's part of Babylon. And we leave it there. Point number two. Here is where real conflict comes into play and where, where convictions begin to be revealed clearly. Where it says in verse 5, And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat. And the wine which he, which he drank shall nourish them three years, that the end thereof they might stand before the king. Nebuchadnezzar says the diet must change. Their diet must change. They must eat what we eat here in Babylon. But verse 8, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat. Purposed in his heart. But Daniel, this is only food. Why could you not compromise on food? What difference does it make what you eat? Surely, Daniel, you wouldn't have to go against the king. Could you not just compromise and do what the king tells you? No. Here we come to the laws of God. We know what Peter said in Acts chapter 10 when he had that vision. And he was invited to eat. And he says, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. There were laws. They were not to eat those things which were common or unclean. So here is one of the, the great buts of the Bible in verse 8. But Daniel, he dropped his anchor. He drew a line. This is where it is. My convictions will not allow me to step across that line. No mistake. Here I stand. He purposed. That word purpose means to set, ordain, to make, or to determine, and to be fixed. That's what it meant. That's what it means. It's like there's a wall. His convictions did not allow him to go beyond that. Now, this was not a light matter. Because Melzar says, now, now Daniel, wait a minute. Don't you understand how ruthless King Nebuchadnezzar is? If you don't cooperate, 
he'll just take my head right off my shoulders. See, Melzar found himself between Daniel and the king. This is beautiful. And I'd like to emphasize tonight that our personal convictions must never, we must never view them as something that we are proud of and we're arrogant about or boastful about. But we must be very humble as we instruct and defend. Yes, we draw a line, but we're humble. And Daniel makes an appeal. Now, would you just give us ten days? Just ten days. And so, Melzar, he, he listens to that appeal, and he says, yes, I'll give you ten days. What a victory. What a tremendous victory. Verse 14 through 16. So he consented to them in this matter and proved them ten days. And at the end of ten days, their countenance appeared fair and fatter in flesh than all the children which did eat a portion of the king's meat. Thus Melzar took away the portion of their meat and wine that they should drink, and he gave them hope. What a victory. Here was a young man who stood true to his convictions, and God was faithful and blessed him because he stood for his convictions in a very humble way, I believe, made up an appeal, and was rewarded for that faithfulness. That's beautiful. Now, the third step, as it relates to putting babblings into these young men, he says, Nebuchadnezzar says, their names must change. We're going to have to change their names. These men can no longer be called Daniel, Mishael, Azariah, Hananiah, or Azariah. But their names are going to have to be changed. Now again, we might say tonight, this is all more. What difference does it make what my name is? What difference would it have made what, what, what the Nebuchadnezzar would have called these men? Could they not compromise? Let's think about that a bit. Our names mean something, don't they? If I say Esther tonight, you immediately think of a character that means Esther. If I say Jezebel, you also think of a character with that name. When we first moved to Ireland, we of course needed to introduce ourselves to, to the Irish, to the community there. And as we introduced ourselves as a family, I think especially some of the closer neighbors that became dear friends of ours, I didn't have much of a problem because Edward, there was a king in England, of course, by that name, there was a St. Edward in the Catholic Church. So I didn't have too much of a problem. Our, our son Kevin had no problem at all. But Mary Jo, she won the prize. She would say her name, and their, name, their faces would just light up with a smile. There was a connection there. And we had this joke as a family that if, there, if you met a woman on the road or someone you didn't know, 
was a store somewhere, and she was about 45 to 50 years of age, call her marriage, because about half of the time would be right. There were just so many married. You see, it was the custom, the Catholic Church, that every home had a John and a Mary. That's just the way it was. Every home had a John and a Mary. Now, it's not, not like that anymore, but it was a number of years ago. Now, Lois, our father, he never met a woman in Ireland by the name of Lois. And when she would introduce herself, uh, those dear Irish people can hardly twist their tongue to say Lois. It's just, it came out like Lewis, Lois. It's, it was just hard to say Lois. Then they might say something like this. The only time they ever remember hearing that name, and we would tell them, was the Bible name. Timothy's grandmother. That didn't seem to make connection. But they might say something like this. They remember watching American telly, and Superman's girlfriend's name was Lois. Then we would stand with bewilderment and say, well, we didn't know that. We didn't even know Superman had a girlfriend, much less what her, what her name was. I say that to make a point that our names identify us. Our names connect us. Our names mean something. Now, let's make a study of these names. What does Daniel mean? Daniel simply means, God is my judge. God is my judge. What does Belteshazzar mean? That means the treasure of Baal. God Baal. Now, God Baal was one of the, 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 the gods in Babylon that ruled over myth and superstition. Treasure fell. Treasure God fell. So in other words, Daniel, from now on, I don't want you to think of yourself as Daniel, but as Belteshazzar, as God fell, uh, ruling over tra the treasures of the gods of Babylon. Hananiah, what does that mean? It means the grace of God. The graciousness of God. What does Shadrach mean? It means the inspiration of the God Son, S-U-N. Now, I mean, we could go again to the laws of God, and it was clearly commanded that they were not to worship the Son. Mishael, what does that mean? He who comes from God is what God is. What does Meshach mean? He who belongs to goddess Shishak. Now, goddess Shishak, she was one of the goddess that ruled over lust, filth, and immorality. What does Azariah mean? It means the Lord is my help. What does Abednego mean? It means the slave of God. Nebo. And God Nebo was one of those Babylon gods which presided over literature, art, science, and so forth. Now, is it still all moral? 
Doesn't make a difference what their names were. What we're really talking about tonight is an identity crisis. Who will you identify with? Who will these young men identify with? Jehovah God or the God of Babylon? The God of Babylon. It has to do with seeing who we are. It has to do with seeing what we're all about. Was, was Nebuchadnezzar able to put Babylon into these boys? Mishael. Instead of thinking that you come from God, from, from God Jehovah, I want you to think of yourself as coming from Goddess Shishak, the God of immorality. And, and I dare ask us tonight, are there those gods around us? They're all around us in Babylon. God of filth and immorality. And dear young people, I beg of you, that you live lives, and for all of us, we must live lives that are pure, that are separate from the filth and the immorality that's all around us. It presses in, it pushes in, and tries to overcome us. John Coleman says in one of his books that this god Shishak, this god of Shishak, is as strong as steel. The tobacco industry, they know that if they can get a young man, a young woman, to begin to use tobacco at a young age, their business is secure. Do you know that the pornography business takes the exact same approach? Oh, may we not bow to God. Nebo, the enslaving God of Nebo that keeps men and women enslaved in sin. Babylon full of gods. You know, sometimes we find ourselves in situations where, where we're not sure. God, what is your will for my life? And it could be various things. It's, it's not clearly spelled out in Scripture as black and white. And young people struggle with this maybe more than some of us who are a bit older. But we, we struggle with it as well at times. But young people may ask the question, should I go into service at this place? Lord, is that what you want for me? Should I serve somewhere across the waters somewhere? Lord, what, what is your plan for my life? And that's where we have opportunity. We have opportunity to reach out to others and to draw from them to some of those questions that are not so clear. But there are things in the Scriptures that are very clear, black, and white. And one of those is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 through 5, where it says, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you abstain from fornication, that every one of you know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles, which know not God. It is God's will for us that we live pure lives. Pure lives. And dear young people, I want to tell you tonight, 
Your lives of purity will shine bright and clear in this dark world. Because I remember distinctly a 19-year-old young man. I read about this. On the job. Was testifying to, to some of his peers at work. And he testified of a pure life. Not delving into some of this filth that's so easy to become, that's so available. He says, I'm living a pure life. His peers mocked at him. He said, there's no way that a 19-year-old young man can live a pure life. It is possible. By the grace of God. Conviction. Here I draw the line. I do not step across that line. May your convictions maintain, help you to maintain purity. May our convictions, I should say, help us. Because, yes, I do not want to point fingers at young people tonight because all of us struggle. And so we face. May we live lives that are pure and clean for Jehovah God and not bow to the gods of Babylon. Let's move on now to chapter 5. Was Daniel able to maintain his conviction? Daniel chapter 5, we're, we're a generation later. We're talking about an identity crisis. Will his convictions maintain his identity? Now, we know the story here in Daniel chapter 5. About Belshazzar calls for a great feast. In verse 1, a thousand of his lords, and they began to drink wine, and look at what they're, what they're using to drink wine with. It says in verse 2, and Belshazzar, whilst he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the gold and, and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple, which was at Jerusalem, that the king and his princes and his wives and his concubines might drink therein. So they bring those vessels that had been brought a generation earlier from, from the temple, and here they are now using them for this party. And you know what happened. There's a handwriting on the wall. And the king begins, he, he says that his joints began to become so weak that they were, they were knocking together, knocking at each other. And he began, his countenance uh, was changed, it says in verse 6. And his thoughts troubled him, that his joints and his loins were loosened, and his knees smote one against another. Then the queen steps in on the scene. And he says, there is a man, there is a man in the kingdom, that I believe could maybe have an answer, would have an answer for, for the writing on the wall. And we find that then in verse 10. Now the queen, by reason of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banquet house. And the, king, the queen spake and said, O king, live forever. Let not thy thoughts trouble thee, nor let the countenance be changed. There is a man in thy kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of thy father, light and understanding and wisdom, much like the wisdom of the gods, was found in him whom the king Nebuchadnezzar, thy father, the king, I say, thy father, made master of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. And then, it, then of course, he calls for him, and then look at verse 13. 
Then was Daniel brought in before the king, and the king spake and said unto Daniel, Art thou that Belteshazzar? No. Art thou that Daniel? Which art of the children of the captive of Judah, captivity of Judah, whom the king my father brought out of Judah? He did not lose his identity. A generation later, he was still seen as Daniel, the man that had come from Jerusalem. Never lost his identity. Let's go to chapter 6. The familiar story of Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel spent that night with the lions. The king was troubled, could not sleep. So the next morning early, he rushes to that den. And what does he say in verse 20? Now remember, this is now another generation later. So now we are two generations from Daniel chapter 1. We're about 55 years after Daniel chapter 1. And when he came to the den, in verse 20, he cried with a lamentable voice unto Daniel. And the king spake and said to Daniel, O Belteshazzar, no, no. Servant of the living God is thy God, capital G, capital G, Jehovah God. Is thy God whom thou servest continually able to deliver thee from the lions? He had not lost his identity for two generations. He still identified with Jehovah God as a man that was brought from Jerusalem. Not lost his identity. Now we find here in Daniel chapter 6, we come back to conscience, conviction, and character. They're all three seen very clearly in Daniel chapter 6. Where would we find conviction? Well, we find that in verse 4 and 5. Then the president and the princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find none occasion nor fault, for as much as he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault found in him. Then said these men, We shall not find any occasion against this this Daniel, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Convictions are to be based on what? The law of God. They understood that was the only place they were going to trip this man up. Now, where do we find character? Verse 10. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house. And his windows being opened in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeling upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. There's character. There's character. We have said one of the definitions of character is that it produces a predictable behavior. These men knew that this man, Daniel, had a predictable behavior. And that was that he was going to pray three times a day to his God, Jehovah. And his character proved his conviction. Now, where is conscience? We find that in verse 22. 
talking to the king, he says, My God has sent his angel and has shut the lion's mouth, and they have not hurt me. For as much as before him innocency was found in me, and as before thee, O king, I have done no hurt. Innocency was found in me. There you have conscience. Daniel's conscience was free, innocent, and clear before God is my judge. And he understood that God was his judge. He never lost sight of that. Our conscience commends us or it condemns us. And in this case, it commends. It did not condemn Daniel. He was free, innocent, before God Almighty, who he understood clearly was his judge. Tonight, 2,600 years later, I invited you to turn not to the book of Belteshazzar, but to the book of Daniel. Now, do you suppose tonight that when Ashkenaz went to Jerusalem, that 900-mile trek, trail, from Babylon to Jerusalem, that he would have just come back to Babylon with four young men? I'm very doubtful. I'm very doubtful. According to the timeline, we could go to 2 Kings chapter 24. There it clearly says that Nebuchadnezzar had, had, had come from Babylon to Jerusalem. Now, I'm not exactly sure. It doesn't tell us exactly in detail because he, he made a couple campaigns against Jerusalem. But I, don't, I do know it says there that at one time he took 10,000 and another time he took 7,000. Was Daniel in one of those groups? Very possible. I don't know. Now, now why do you suppose that tonight... We're not talking about those several other thousands that come from Jerusalem to Babylon. Did they compromise their convictions? Did they lose their identity? Do you suppose they simply assimilated into Babylon, into the world around them? Unidentifiable. The call tonight, brothers and sisters, and friends, is that we lose not our identity. We belong to Jehovah's God, and our convictions must be able to maintain that identity. I am not a part of this evil, dark culture, but I belong to God. Is it fair to say that regardless of where we find ourselves, and remember, this young Daniel was, as I said, 900 miles from home. I don't know what his mom and daddy were like. Maybe they weren't believers. I, I don't know. 
But, but why would he reach out and compromise? After all, no, what, nobody else would have known. They wouldn't have cared. No, he could not afford to compromise on his convictions and his identity. May God help us to be on the side God I just discovered this today. I'm, it's, it's always been here. But in Daniel chapter 9, in verse 23, Gabriel says, and this is, this is just the testimony of, of the, the angel Gabriel that speaking to Daniel, thou art beloved God. Do we want to be God's beloved? We do. May we not compromise our convictions as we relate to that which is the law of God. It needs to be based upon the law of God.